Hello and welcome to Question Period. I'm Joyce Napier. Today on the program, emergency test. It was something uh, that Canadians uh, experienced with real concern, which was why we move forward with uh, measures that are not to be taken lightly. Public hearings into the use of the Emergencies Act are now underway. Was the historic legislation really needed to stop the so-called Freedom Convoy protests? Can the federal government prove it met the high legal threshold to invoke the act? We'll speak to a panel of MPs to discuss then renewed resistance. There most certainly uh, is a much space for uh, a province like Saskatchewan and other provinces to reassert uh, their, their provincial jurisdiction. Threatened by the Trudeau government's climate policies, Saskatchewan releases a white paper to defend its economy and natural resources. How far will it take its fight with Ottawa? And is it eyeing its own sovereignty act? Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe will join us, plus boosted defence. When we mobilise, when we call on NATO allies to do more, they're actually doing more. In the wake of Russian missile strikes, NATO countries are boosting air defence support for Ukraine. What does that aid signal and how should the West respond to Russia's warning of World War III if Ukraine were to join NATO? We'll speak to Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. History is being made in the nation's capital. For the next six weeks, Canadians will hear testimony at a public inquiry into the unprecedented use of the Emergencies Act. The burning question, did the federal government meet the legal threshold to trigger the act in response to anti-mandate protests? While this inquiry will deal with a wide range of issues, its focus will remain squarely on the decision of the federal government. Why did it declare an emergency? How did it use its powers? And were those actions appropriate? The act was in place for nine days in February to help clear the capital of a weeks-long illegal occupation in the downtown core. Blockades at key border crossings, including the Ambassador Bridge linking Windsor and Detroit, were already cleared before the act was invoked. The legislation temporarily gave police more powers and allowed banks to freeze some protesters' accounts. There is a list of 65 witnesses who are expected to testify. From the federal government, that includes Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, and Ministers Marco Mendicino, Bill Blair, Omar Al-Gabra, Anita Anand, David Lamedi, and Dominique Leblanc. Key convoy organizers and protesters like Tamara Leach and Pat King are also being called to testify. So, were the temporary powers under the Emergencies Act needed to end the protest? What truth will be uncovered? And joining me now are Liberal MP Yasser Nakvi, Conservative MP Dane Lloyd, and Matthew Green from the NDP. Good morning to the three of you. Good to have you on the show. Um, Yasser Nakvi, I want to start with you. So your government insisted that it needed the Emergencies Act as, quote, a last resort to deal with the protests. Was there not any other tool that your government had to not invoke, I mean, this unprecedented option? Well, let's recall what we were living through in the beginning of this year through January and February. We had a 24-day occupation 
of downtown Ottawa, right in front of Parliament Hill. But not only just the Parliament Hill, but also the surrounding residential areas where my members of my community were not able to leave their homes. They were harassed. They were intimidated. Just today, in the public inquiry, we heard uh, uh, from some of my constituents on, uh, on Friday about the, the, the kind of harassment they, they went through, not to mention hundreds of small businesses were shuttered. No, I'm, I'm, I, the, I, we all agree with you. We were here, and I understand completely what you're saying. The question is not whether people were harassed or whether you know, this occupation had lasted too long. The question is, was that truly the only option? Well, that was the option that was available to put an end to the occupation because until that moment, that occupation was only uh, getting uh, bigger and stronger, not to mention what we saw at various border crossings across the country as well. Government, the federal government had to use its last resort in order uh, to put an end to this occupation. You may recall there were an, an emergency uh, declared by City of Ottawa and an emergency declared by Province of Ontario. None of those things were able to end the occupation or the blockades. Federal government had no option but to invoke the Emergencies Act and the result is that the occupation ended for City of Ottawa. Okay, I, I, I want to ask you, uh, Dane Lloyd, from the beginning, the Conservatives have said they oppose the Emergencies Act and don't think the threshold was met. What are you watching for during this inquiry? What I'm looking for is to see that whether or not the government has evidence that they met the very high legal threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act. And I want to point, you know, to an example of Back in uh, early 2020, when we had the rail blockade protests, uh, the federal government sent in negotiators. They sought to de-escalate the situation. As far as I've seen, I've seen no evidence that this government made any attempt to try to de-escalate the convoy protests in Ottawa. In fact, if anything, they tried to escalate it through their rhetoric, uh, through their rhetoric against the convoy protesters. And, and I think that directly led to uh, an increase in the size of the protests, and, and it directly led to the use of the Emergencies Act, which I, I don't believe was justified. So, Matthew Green, let me ask you, back in February, the NDP voted in favor of using the Act. What are you watching for um, and, and what do you expect from witnesses like the Prime Minister? Well, obviously, over the course of the last week, there will have been testimony throughout the inquiry uh, at, on the Justice Rouleau Commission side, but we have been actually involved in a joint parliamentary review committee for the last six months. And the biggest challenge that we've had is we supported the invocation of the act, knowing that we would have the opportunity for review. But we haven't found this government to be very cooperative with the committee. They have a responsibility to come clean with the facts and to present in the fullest of information all of the preconditions that led us to this moment. Uh, we believe that there needs to be recommendations coming out of this process. So that do you have think that voting in favor of it was a mistake? No, uh, based on the information that we had, we experienced the same thing that people in Ottawa experienced. You know, you heard people testifying that they felt terrified, that there was no escape. There was a incident of uh, armed uh, cells in, in Coots, which had weapons on hand, which, you know, is a, is a terrorist kind of intent. And so we had to take that on its face value for being as serious as it was. And I think what we recognized was the failure of all levels of government, including policing, to have this come to an end. And I think what's missing in all of this, if we if we talk about what's happening over the course of the last week with the inquiry, is that Doug Ford in this provincial government has been nowhere to be seen. 
they had within their abilities, I believe, the opportunity to bring this to an end through fining the truckers, through the Ministry of Transport and other measures, but they just failed to act. So Dane Lloyd, that's a good point Mr. Green makes. Where's the responsibility of the provincial government in this? Are you, are you looking to that? Are you hoping to get answers on that? Well, one part I think is the government has cited that the border crossings were a key reason why they invoked the Emergencies Act. But it's clear to me, both in the case of Alberta and in the case of Ontario, that the provincial governments were very effective at de-escalating the situation and dismantling the blockades at our borders. And so the question comes to me is, is why was this not uh, the case in Ottawa? Um, I believe that the federal government bears the primary blame uh, for why the situation escalated the way that it did. And, and frankly, I think, uh, you know, there's some real questions about whether or not the, uh, the provisions used in the Emergencies Act, such as freezing people's bank accounts, uh, such as arresting people who would come within the bubble zone in Ottawa, uh, whether or not those were appropriate uh, violations of our charter rights, whether they were justified, I don't believe they were. And, and I'm looking forward to the commission uh, more thoroughly examining uh, those, uh, those provisions. So, yes, you're not, we're, we're months away from a conclusion because it's six weeks of hearing and then a report in February, the end of February. I know it's a hypothetical question, but it's a real one. What happens if indeed uh, Justice Ru uh, Judge Rulo rules that it was an unnecessary invocation of the act? Well, I, I, I've said this before, and I, I don't think, I think it will be premature given that we've only gone through week one of, of the commission to start speculating as to what the outcome is going to be. I think the facts remain that we had an unprecedented situation that took place in our country that not only impacted our nation's capital, an entire downtown community in Ottawa, but also several of our border crossings. We, as my colleagues have said, we saw uh, a failure on the part of other levels of government, the municipal and provincial government in taking meaningful action and the government, federal government, really had no, uh, uh, no other method left but uh, to invoke the Emergencies Act. And the proof is that we were able to not only secure our borders as a result, but also an end, put an end to the occupation. So, Matt Green, uh, you know, usually these commissions last a lot longer than six weeks. Um, you know, uh, Judge Rulo has to hand in a report by the end of February again, is this enough time? I mean, if this is a complex issue and an unprecedented situation, is this, in your opinion, enough time to do all that? No, and I think Justice Rulo alluded to this as well. I think that we can't lose sight of the fact that there's also a joint parliamentary uh, oversight, a review process that's happening parallel to the commission. I think what I'm most irked about is under Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government, they have been unwilling and in fact they've been obstructionist at committee to provide even the most basic information because at the end of the day, regardless of what side of the issue you're on, right, all Canadians deserve to know the truth. They deserve to know whether or not there was a, a threshold that met a national security threat. That is a very real thing within the legislation because if we don't, the risk is we'll have future governments using this willy-nilly to crush civil liberties across the country. So we want to make sure that it was verified. And quite frankly, it's up to Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government to verify those facts and to come clean with Canadians on exactly what happened. Yeah, you are right. It is uh, precedent setting, but we you know, should specify that the, the witnesses that we're hearing and will continue to hear have been pre-interviewed also by the commission, but that's all the time we have. MPs Yasser Nagfi, Dane Lloyd, 
and Matthew Green. Thanks for joining us. When we come back, Prairie pushback. Saskatchewan's Premier has released a white paper on how to defend his province's economic autonomy. How far will he go in his wrestle with Ottawa? And is he eyeing his own Sovereignty Act? Premier Scott Moe joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Federal fight. As Alberta's new Premier works on a Sovereignty Act, Saskatchewan is the latest province pushing for more independence from Ottawa. Just days ago, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe released a policy paper saying he's prepared to fight what he calls federal intrusion into provincial jurisdiction of natural resources. According to the document called Drawing the Line, federal climate policies will cost Saskatchewan households and industries $111 billion between 2023 and 2035. As for the next steps, the paper says there could be legislation clarifying constitutional rights belonging to the province and a push for more autonomy over, among others, immigration policy. More details are expected in Premier Mo's upcoming throne speech on October 26. So how far is Saskatchewan willing to go in its fight against Ottawa? And with Alberta demanding more autonomy as well, is Canada headed for another constitutional debate? Let's ask the man who is pushing back against Ottawa. Joining me now is Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. Uh, hello, Premier. Welcome to Question Period. It's always good to have you on the show. Um, you know, I want to talk about timing because timing is to politics what location is to real estate. So, and, and you asked your finance department for this analysis. Why are you doing this now? Well, what we're uh, doing is, uh, and what we did here this week, was re essentially release a, a white paper that looks at, uh, one, the, the historical relationship uh, as it pertains to uh, the development of natural resources primarily between the province of Saskatchewan and the federal government throughout time, you know, throughout our 110 plus years that we've uh, been in the, in the federation. And then also looks at where we are today and, and really, um, then is focusing on uh, what Saskatchewan uh, has before it. And, and we're on the cusp of uh, some tremendous investment in uh, our province, uh, which will create jobs and create opportunity. And uh, so what this document is that we released uh, is really a, a traditional walk through time on the FedProv relations, but also uh, is the foundation on which uh, we are going to uh, most certainly uh, take provincial action within uh, the, the confines of, of the Federation to make for a stronger Saskatchewan, yeah. which ultimately we believe will make for a stronger Federation so, of Canada as well. I want to go back to that timing issue because I really do think timing is uh, is important. And, uh, you know, in Alberta, UCP leader Danielle Smith campaigned for the top job, you know, promising this sovereignty act. So you, you, you both seem to be going more or less in the same direction, demanding more power. So is this a coincidence or... Did you inspire each other? Are you talking to each other? Yeah, I, I don't know what um, any sovereignty act would look like uh, in Alberta. I haven't seen one that's been drafted. We've been working on this uh, for a period of time. Um, I, I don't know that if the timing would be considered a coincidence uh, or 
or, or what exactly with the change in leadership or the change in Premier now in, in the province of Alberta. This is uh, an act that is focused on, on Saskatchewan and, and unlocking that potential that we have in our province of Saskatchewan and taking control where we can as a province within, uh, within the, the constitution that we respect uh, in this nation uh, to, to ensure that we are, are going to be able to achieve uh, what, we, what we can. So, you know, obviously you can imagine, uh, you, you've seen that too, the constitutional experts are now obviously piping in, uh, you know, saying you would need to reopen the constitution, you could need to get the approval of seven provinces. We know what happens when we reopen the constitution. Uh, some of us are old enough to remember. So you need the approval of seven provinces, 50% yeah. of the population and, and the federal government. So is that what you are asking for, and I'm wondering if you think that that's what the people of Saskatchewan want. No, and that's not what we're asking for. Uh, listen, the, uh, any constitutional changes that may be required uh, would be similar to what we uh, saw how, how Quebec unilaterally changed the constitution uh, recently, which the prime minister said was fine, they could do that. And so we view uh, that if there is any unilateral, unilateral changes that need to happen uh, with the constitution as we move ahead, uh, we'd do it in a similar so fashion. So like what, as, give me an example, give me an example. What would you do unilaterally? I'm not going to get into the details of what uh, some legislation might ultimately look like because I, I can't reveal that uh, until it's uh, really um, introduced in, in our legislature, most certainly. Um, but one of the focuses is, is we are going to have a piece of legislation uh, in our legislati legislature uh, this fall uh, to really uh, reassert our, our provincial right to develop the the natural resources within the boundaries of, of the province of Saskatchewan as per the intent and the spirit of the Constitution of Canada. Everything we do will be uh, within the Constitution of Canada that we, uh, that we respect. So I, I want to go back to your unilaterally, but within the Constitution, which one is it? Is it unilaterally, as you said, Quebec has done, or will you do this within or respecting the Constitution? How far are you willing to go in an arm wrestling match with Ottawa? Listen, uh, we think there is, uh, within the Constitution as it sits today, there most certainly uh, is a much space for uh, a province like Saskatchewan and other provinces to reassert uh, their, their provincial jurisdiction, in particular when it comes to uh, the development of our, of our natural resources. That is a provincial in jurisdiction. And listen, this, this isn't about uh, primarily changing the Constitution. It isn't even about the federal government, um, what Saskatchewan's, the conversation we're raising in Saskatchewan. It's what we can do as a province to ensure that we unlock this great potential that is before us to produce some of the most sustainable products that are available on Earth today and make them available to other Canadians and North Americans to create energy and food security for our continent. And so this is a, a conversation that very much is about Saskatchewan. Yeah, but inevitably you're going to have to have that conversation with Ottawa. But I want to move on to, you know, while you drafted this white paper, you did not uh, consult with Indigenous leaders and that's that's what they're, they're, they're saying. So the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations said in a statement, and I'll read it to you, Premier Mo talks about the constitutional rights of the province, yet he and his government continually ignore First Nations inherent in treaty rights, as well as our Section 35 constitutional right. Uh, First Nations do not know what the effect of this plan will be because we were not even provided with any information on this plan. Can I ask you, uh, Premier Mo, why not consult with them? 
So we, we consulted with Saskatchewan individuals. Many of them are Indigenous, many were not. Uh, our MLAs consulted with folks far and wide, uh, not only throughout the last summer, but throughout the last many months and years. Uh, we had a, a small consultation group of an MLA and a previous MLA that went out and myself was uh, across the province doing open town halls as well as working with individuals across the province on, uh, you know, what are the, where do the opportunities lie and where do the challenges lie uh, in us achieving those opportunities. And so many, many individuals have been consulted. We didn't openly uh, consult business groups. Uh, we didn't openly consult corporations and we didn't openly consult, uh, um, you know, municipal leaders, indigenous leaders. We consulted with individuals across Saskatchewan um, and and, uh, I, and section 35 is a, a relationship uh, between uh, indigenous folks and, and the, the nation of Canada as opposed to the province um, and what we are trying to do here is to assert the provincial um, uh, constitutional um, jurisdiction that we have to make Saskatchewan a better a better place for all and that includes indigenous people as well as non-indigenous people. But it wasn't people. mentioned we have in a, your white paper. A rich history uh, but of, of engagement this was not mentioned this was not mentioned in your white paper can you do this without consulting with no, first no, nations no it, we did we did consult with individuals across the province is, is what i'm saying I, I, whether they were indigenous or non-indigenous we didn't consult with with groups or, or or even uh you know municipal or community leaders we consulted with individuals within uh those those communities and i would say this is a road that we actually walk together and have been walking together for some period of time in in saskatchewan this is most certainly um an opportunity that is uh, here for Saskatchewan, all Saskatchewan people, uh, whether they be Indigenous or non-Indigenous, and we most certainly uh, will work together like we always, always have uh, with all communities in Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks so much, Joyce. You have a great day today. Okay, coming up, added arsenal. After massive Russian airstrikes, NATO countries are boosting air missile defense to Ukraine. What will that mean for Ukraine and how stark is the fear of Russian escalation if Ukraine joins NATO? Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, will be here next. Stay right here with Question Period. It will have severe consequences if Russia use nuclear uh, weapon, uh, any kind of nuclear weapon against uh, Ukraine. More mobilized support from the West. After a string of Russian missile strikes across Ukraine, NATO allies are renewing their support for Ukraine. Several allies have pledged advanced air defense weapons to Kyiv following a NATO defense minister's meeting in Brussels. Canada is also stepping up, announcing more than $47 million in new military aid. It will also be sending 40 combat engineers to Poland to train Ukrainian soldiers. This comes as the UN just voted overwhelmingly to condemn Russia's annexation in Ukraine, marking the strongest support to date for Ukraine since Russia's invasion began. So, what does this renewed support for Ukraine signal to Russia, and how should the West respond to Russia's warning of World War III if Ukraine were to join NATO? Let's find out. Joining me now is Canada's ambassador to the UN, Bob Ray. So Canada has pledged more military aid and other NATO allies have said they will supply more air defense weapons. Is that what Ukraine needs, air defense weapons? Well, I mean, look at the, the last week, we've seen uh, missiles attacking both from within Russia uh, and from the Black Sea. Uh, and uh, they've knocked out electricity, uh, utilities, they've knocked out, well, they've killed people, individuals driving their cars. I don't think it's particularly focused. I think they're just trying to 
show the Ukrainians that uh, nowhere in Ukraine is can they go safely without being under the threat of a of a military attack from uh, from Russia. Uh, but so I do think that protecting as much as possible the airspace and giving giving uh, anti missile protection uh, and be able to compete with the Russian air force. I think those are all important factors. So yes, air defense is a critical issue. So it's, it, this comes as as the UN just voted overwhelmingly to condemn Russia's annexation uh, of, uh, of Ukraine or certain regions of Ukraine. This is the strongest support that the UN has shown so far. What can that have as consequence? I mean, is, is Vladimir Putin even listening? I think that he, he, he is listening. I think any world leader has to listen to a powerful expression of world opinion. Um, but I think that what Mr. Putin is watching and listening to the most are the things that most leaders look for is what's happening to my troops on the ground. He's lost a lot of soldiers. Estimates go as high as over 60,000. Uh, people actually actually killed many more, up to close to 100,000 who are either seriously wounded or killed or out of action. Uh, and he's also looking at what's happened to his own economy. He knows morale is poor. He lost several hundred thousand people, uh, men who would refuse to be enlisted. Um, and I think he's I think he's looking at all these things. And if he was smart, uh, he would be assessing this situation to say, I've got to I've got to move to a, a different space in a different place. So next month, there will be a, a G20 meeting in uh, in Indonesia and in Bali. Uh, and Krisha Freeland, Canada's um, Deputy Prime Minister, said that Russia has no place at the G20 table. Um, I want to hear you on that, and I'm wondering if around the table at the UN, where, where you are, um, you're hearing that. Are other G20 countries saying the same thing? Many of them are. Uh, I think, it's, uh, I think that's, it's, not, it's not unique to Canada, that, that view. Um, it, it's pretty hard to have a really productive meeting when you've got somebody who only wants to throw crowbars into the meetings and, and, and bombs towards the people of Ukraine. Uh, usually, the, it's the host country, Indonesia, that decides uh, who will be invited and, and who, will be, uh, who will be welcomed. Um, I think we have to recognize that there are a lot of important issues that are going to be on the table uh, in Bali, and we don't we would like the meeting to go ahead. So I hope very much that that, uh, that things can be worked out. But uh, I do, you know, we, we decided at the United Nations that uh, there was no place for, uh, for Russia at the uh, United Nations Human Rights Council. And uh, they, they, as the vote was taking place, they decided to resign. So <laughs> we've made it pretty clear that we don't consider themselves to be anything but a, a rogue state and a pariah state at the moment. Uh, and that's the sad reality of the hole that Mr. Putin has dug for himself. But, you know, Russia's making statements sort of, we know he's, he's you know, the nuclear threat is, is sort of hovering over uh, that part of Europe. And now he's saying that um, if Ukraine were to join NATO, it would be World War III. How seriously do you take that? Well, I think we're in the position of saying we, of course, we take anybody who makes a threat like this, you take it seriously, you say, of course, you take it seriously. But I think it's the critical thing for us is that we cannot be paralyzed or bamboozled by 
by these kinds of threats. I mean, these are illegal threats. Uh, they're contrary to the Charter of the United Nations. Uh, first use of nuclear weapons, as Mr. Putin has many times said, that he agrees with the fact that nobody wins a nuclear war. Um, so, as I said, Mr. Putin is creating, has created his own situation. Our objective is not to go to war with Russia. Our objective is not to destroy Russia. Our objective is not to undermine Russia. Our objective is to allow Ukraine to live in peace and all of Russia's neighbors to live in peace. And I think if we keep making that very clear, as well as saying what is absolutely apparent from what uh, leaders have been saying around the world, is that if the conflict were to be escalated in some way, the country that would pay the very heaviest price for that would be Russia. And I think the people of Russia and the other leaders in Russia know that. I think they know by now that we're not fooling around. We are not going to let Ukraine go under, and we're not going to let Mr. Putin succeed. And so he needs to understand that. Bob Ray, thank you for that. That's Canada's ambassador to the UN, Bob Ray. Have yourself a wonderful day, sir. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Joyce. And still to come, Emergencies Act under scrutiny. What questions does the public inquiry into the use of the act need to answer? And what's at stake politically for the Prime Minister and his government? Former OPP Commissioner Chris Lewis joins us next on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. Making their case, battle lines are already being drawn just days into public hearings into the unprecedented use of the Emergencies Act. Was it justified or not? Order alert. The six weeks of hearings began Thursday. The inquiry headed by former Ontario Superior Court Justice Paul Rouleau will look into what led to the anti-mandate protests that gridlocked downtown Ottawa and border crossings back in February as well as the government's use of the act to help dismantle them. The government argues careful consideration was given to its decision, while provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan object to its use. Meantime, police have conflicting views, with Ontario Provincial Police saying the act was not needed, while the lawyer for former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly is putting blame on a lack of resources and intelligence available. So, were the emergency powers what law enforcement needed to clear out Ottawa streets? And what's at stake for the Trudeau government with this inquiry? The Scrum is here to answer that. Annie Bergeron-Oliver is a CTV News parliamentary reporter. Tana McCharles is a parliamentary reporter for the Toronto Star. And our special guest this round is former Ontario Provincial Police Commissioner and CTV News public safety analyst Chris Lewis. Hello to the three of you. Uh, good to have you. Um, Chris, let me start with you. Several law enforcement officials earlier in the spring, including Ottawa Police Interim Chief Steve Bell, told the Special Parliamentary Committee they did not explicitly ask for the act to be invoked, but they've also said it gave them necessary powers to end the protest. So let me, I don't understand that point. They, had the, they didn't have the powers before that? to end this protest? They did have the powers, Joyce. I get the point that it helped expedite things, uh, particularly on the towing front. Uh, that was big because getting tow trucks in was a challenge for them, and that was a huge piece of, of getting that whole blockade broken up and out of there. And uh, swearing in hundreds of RCMP all at once saves a couple hours here and there, but that's not a big deal. 
uh, I didn't really see anything else out of it. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to me that prior to that, Ottawa has handled many protests, none with trucks, but others much bigger than that and much more violent. And since then, they broke up blockades uh, with some similar folks uh, without the, the emergency legislation. So did they need it? I don't believe they did. Did it help? Probably did. Just expedited things. Well, actually, the Ottawa police has handled some protests with trucks. Uh, there was the United We, we Roll Truckers right. protest. There have been numerous farming uh, protests. Dairy farmers brought, you know, any number of combines and this and that and trucks and whatnot on the hill. We've seen it before, which is why the Ottawa police was told by their policing partners federally not to allow those trucks to come downtown and park, even if they had some sort of agreement that they'd leave after three days, which they didn't really do. We've heard already in this inquiry that it was clear they were going to ensconce for a long time. So, look, uh, I think that the policing failures are going to be a huge part of this uh, story going ahead in the next few weeks. And it will also, though, be a question, were those policing failures such that the federal government had no faith that it could be resolved and they resorted to these powers. I think it's a pretty uh, low bar if we're just saying the police can't manage it, right? This is a really a question of how we're going to use this act going forward and can we breach civil rights on the ba mere premise that the police can't get themselves together to get rid of a bunch of protesters downtown. And I think downtown. along that line too, the, the police in general are going to have to walk a fine line in this commission because they can't publicly say, yeah, the rules as they exist currently and the laws that we have right now don't allow us to deal with major protests because that is just going to be assigned to people who do want to protest. Great. Police don't have the ability to stop us. Mm -hmm. So they have to be careful there, but they also need to, you know, tell the truth and be honest. So what I'm interested to see is what type of information information comes out of this about what national security advice had been given to the different policing organizations. Perhaps that'll be something that we end up seeing in the cabinet confidence. Maybe that's the cabinet confidence that only the commission sees, the public doesn't. But I want to know what type of advice were the police forces given to let them understand how big this was going to be. And we already see cracks in that mm -hmm. blue line. We already see uh, differences among police forces as to how much intelligence was available and provided to the Ottawa police. So, so I want to bring you in, Chris, because the commission is set to hear from law enforcement that handled the Ottawa protests specifically. What are you listening for? Because, you know, it, it doesn't take a, an analyst to know there was police failure here. No, it, it wasn't. All of you are touching on the right issues. There was a failure from the intelligence perspective, from the planning perspective, not the intelligence gathering, but the reading of that intelligence. Everybody in Canada saw the clips of trucks moving from all over Canada towards Ottawa. It couldn't have been any secret. There's a whole pile of trucks coming to the city. And what's how's that going to impact the downtown core of Ottawa? You know, uh, you don't have to be there many times to realize the impact that would have. Why wasn't there sufficient people brought in ahead of time as opposed to after the fact? Uh, why were those trucks allowed to park in there? That's where the failures were, and I don't believe they had a proper plan. And I know from RCMP and OPP people that were involved in the early stages, and some Ottawa police, that they wanted to better deal with it, but they weren't supported from above in their own police department. I don't want to throw stones, but there was a failure there. So what they needed was a plan, and they needed officers. And suddenly, the OPP aren't providing officers to an organization with no plan. The Mounties aren't bringing people in from all over Canada. Unless there's a plan, how are they going to be used? How are they going to be deployed?
deployed. What how are we going to deal with this? Exactly. And that did not occur exactly. to them. Exactly, it didn't, and and that and was well into the protest. I reported that that there was no plan at the Ottawa Police yeah. Service to deal with this, and it was already by then maybe ten days in. Ten days in, and the chief is screaming for more resources, but has no mm -hmm. idea what to do with them. I want to ask about the political consequences because it ended up with. The, the Justin Trudeau invoking this act, mm -hmm. uh, and we know that you know uh, Rulo, Mr. Rulo, will decide whether it was justified or not. What would be the political consequences for him? Look, if this uh, inquiry finds that the use of the act was not justified, that the government had no reasonable basis, which is the, a threshold in the law, to believe that the act was necessary, then Justin Trudeau's government will wear it for the years ahead. It'll be, whether it's two or three years before the next election, whether it's, you know, whenever the NDP gives up on supporting the government, it will be a huge cross for this government to carry into a next election that you basically um, you know, trashed civil rights in this country because uh, you had you, you didn't you just wanted to run roughshod over free speech. That's a huge black mark on a government's record. Um, but you know, we've also seen polls that show that a lot of Canadians agreed that that blockade, that occupation, was unreasonable. So, I think that you know, public opinion on this. We'll have to see what evidence comes out, as Annie said, yeah. in the classified documents and see where it lands. But the government here is facing two big issues. One is the political ramifications of this inquiry, yeah. because you have to remember that this did go to Parliament, but it was after the government already invoked it. And if the NDP hadn't supported it, this act would have been revoked much sooner than it was. It wouldn't have lasted nine days. It only would have lasted a couple. So it'll be interesting to find out what exactly was given to the NDP, what type of information was given to all the parties early on in confidence about the justification for invoking the act. But it's also the court of public opinion. We already have seen how divisive this is. As Tonda was saying, a lot of people did think it was the right move, that at the time they needed it for economic reasons, for just the sheer fact that they wanted this protest to end. But there's also a huge mass of people who don't think that it was justified. And it'll be interesting to see what the course of the, the inquiry ends up revealing in terms of public opinion and how that shifts as more information comes out. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Chris Lewis, thanks for joining us. Annie and Tonda will stick around. After the break, provincial pushback. How should the federal government respond to provinces that are seeking more autonomy? What constitutional conflict are those provinces facing? Former NDP leader Tom Mulcair joins us next on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. Provincial power plays. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe says he wants to get out from under federal climate policies to develop the province's natural resources. The Prairie Province appears to be following the lead of Quebec, where Premier François Legault, who just won a landslide victory for a second term, has worked for more autonomy for Quebec since his CAC government was first elected more than four years ago. Legault has made repeated use of the notwithstanding clause to pass controversial legislation in the province. Meanwhile, the new Alberta Premier, Danielle Smith, campaigned in large part on her proposed Sovereignty Act. The act would give the Alberta legislature the power to ignore federal laws it doesn't believe are in its best interest, although Smith says she would respect Supreme Court decisions. So. What does this mean for the relationship between the provinces and the federal government? Is this the beginning of provincial resistance? And what can Ottawa do to unite the federation?
And the Scrum is here to answer that. Annie Bergeron-Oliver is a CTV News parliamentary reporter. Tonda McCharles is a parliamentary reporter for the Toronto Star. And our special guest this round is former NDP leader and CTV political analyst Tom Mulcair. Hello to the three of you. Good to have you. Hi, Joyce. Um, Tom, earlier in the show, we heard from Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. He says he doesn't want to reopen the Constitution, but rather make unilateral changes that would affect only his province, just like Quebec does, he says. So is this a political whimper or a political growl? It's a political move that's quite smart in the current context, because as you remember, with Bill 21 that discriminated against religious minorities, Mr. Legault invoked the notwithstanding clause, and it looks like it might make it through in large part. Bill 96 goes even further. He purports to change unilaterally the British North America Act to remove the equality of English and French before the courts. Now, that's uh, quite a step. And at the same time, neither Trudeau nor his justice minister, Attorney General David Lametti, Neither of them seems willing to have the obvious fight because the 1982 Constitution, Joyce, clearly says that if you're touching language rights, it's not a matter of the province's constitution. It's something that requires a motion from both houses of parliament. They haven't done it. Scott Moe's just taking his cue from that. So what Scott Moe is doing is saying, look, uh, I simply want the same thing you've already granted to Quebec. The question is, will he actually get it? And I think the answer is going to be no. Well, Tonda, let's answer that question. I mean, we've seen this movie before. We've seen provinces struggling, trying to get more powers, you know, pulling, as we say in French, the blanket on their side. Is this going to work? I don't think we can know the answer to that yet. Um, it depends on just how far the provinces are willing to go to defy things like court rulings that come down on the legal battles of over-jurisdiction. I mean, in a sense, it's all abstract right now. We've already seen the Supreme Court of Canada say that in some cases, actually, the federal government does have jurisdiction and a responsibility and, uh, and uh, the power to act, even if there's overlap with provinces, like the environment, like climate change. So, you know, I think some of it will depend on just how far these premiers, be it Scott Moe, be it Daniel Smith now in Alberta, or Francois Legault, are prepared to go to defy court orders. That's when it comes to really a question of what's the rule of law worth here? What's, the de what's democracy worth here? Are those premiers defying that? And one has to wonder if this push for more independence and sovereignty is really an, a, an attempt by the premiers to sort of get more support from their own parties, to mm. play to their own bases, but also to put greater pressure and strain on the federal government. You have to look at health care transfers, for example. The provinces have been asking for more health care transfers. The federal government has said, sure, we'll give you more money, but they have strings attached. And so I think that there's a growing level of frustration from the provinces that there is this money available, but it has to be given to them based on on the way that the federal government wants the money to be given to them. So they want this independence to be able to get, for example, money from the federal government without strings attached. Is that going to be possible? A lot of the constitutional experts are saying the changes that Alberta, that Saskatchewan want, will require the constitution to be reopened. And let's be honest here, if Ontario is not on side, that's not going to happen. Well, that's, that, that's interesting, Tom. So, you know, from the perspective of the federal government, you know, how does the Prime Minister reigned this in, because on the one hand, you have these premiers who want more autonomy. On the other hand, you know, they come hat in hand to the federal government because they do want increases in federal transfers for uh, health care. So how does he deal with that, the Prime Minister? Well, health care is the best case that the provinces can put forward. 
going back to the creation of our universal free medical care system in the 70s, it was clear that the deal was the feds pay half, the provinces pay half, here are the standards, it's got to be transportable, you know, it's got to be free, it's got to be, you know, all the stuff that we like and, and know about our Medicare system was in there. That was the deal. Now the feds broke that deal, especially under Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien. They really peeled back the proportion that the feds are paying. The, the fight exists about the actual number. Let's just say there's no dispute that the feds are now paying less than one-third of, of Medicare. So if they want to get back into the game, they can and they can show goodwill towards the provinces by correcting a historic failure on the part of prior federal governments. But Trudeau's shown no willingness to do that. And I think we've seen the federal government say that they're willing to put more money into health care at some point, but they are going to attach it to their priorities. They want spending on long-term care, mental health, uh, boosting actual staffing in the health care system. And those also are the priorities of many of the provinces as well. So my expectation is they will get to an agreement eventually on more money going in. Where, where the rubber will hit the road is whether the provinces are willing to you know, acknowledge, yeah, those are our priorities too. But look, Justin Trudeau came to power pledging a better relationship with the provinces than Stephen Harper ever had. Uh, he's tried to consult and has succeeded in some respects on pension reform, for example. But he's also the son of Pierre Trudeau, who chastised a former prime minister for being headwaiter to the provinces. Justin Trudeau's not about to become a headwaiter to any province either, from what I can tell. Where he asserts federal jurisdiction, he's pretty robust about taking it all the way up to the Supreme Court. So, look, I think that it will come down to practical agreements on things like health care. But as for the rest, I think uh, Trudeau's happy to let them take, take him to court and argue over things like jurisdiction. Canadians don't care about that so much as they care about results. And you have to wonder, is there the appetite right now for change yeah. to the way that the provinces deal with the federal government? Perhaps the provinces that are moving towards that direction of greater sovereignty are looking at perhaps a vulnerability in Trudeau or a strength behind uh, Pierre Polyev, the fact that there could be an election sometime in the future with a minority government. Maybe the Conservative premiers are trying to line up behind Pierre Polyev. But I think the big question on whether or not the premiers move forward on this is, is there the appetite from Canadians with health care being such an issue, hospitals underfunded, uh, the staffing crisis, the fact that a lot of economists say we're entering a recession and inflation. Is the, the, the appetite going to be there behind the premiers who really are wanting to focus on sovereignty or will there need to be a greater focus on the economy, on helping people who are struggling because of inflation or a potential recession? Not all Conservative premiers are on board. Doug Ford, mm -hmm. Nova yeah. Scotia's Tim yeah. Houston, they're not. Right, not so far. Tom Mulcair, Annie Bergeron, Oliver and Tonda McCharles, thanks so much for being there. Good to be with you. Thanks, Joyce. Thank you. And that's Question Period for this week. Be sure to tune in to CTV News for ongoing coverage of the Emergencies Act inquiry. Enjoy your Sunday and we'll be right back here in seven short days.